So as we turn to chapter 13 and verse 1, the opening statement says that John saw a beast rising out of the sea. So if the sea represents the chaos or symbolizes the chaos represented by the dragon bringing discord in the created order, especially seeking to bring attack against the people of God, then the beast emanates out of that chaos. He comes out of the sea and he is one of the many tools that will be used by Satan to carry out his um, carry out his agenda of rebellion. Now you also remember from chapter 11 that in, in chapter 11 verse 7 John saw a beast rising from the bottomless pit making war against the two witnesses. The two witnesses we identified as the symbolic reference to the church's ministry of the word. The issue here, and this to me is very important, as, especially as it relates to chapter 13, the issue here is not who the beast is. And the reason I say that is because one of the tendencies in looking at prophecy, and, and especially as it relates to the book of Revelation, is there's a tendency among evangelicals to try to make a one-to-one -one correlation. And it goes back to something that we've tried to, um, we, we've tried to argue against, and that is trying to read Revelation in a linear fashion, as if we're in, in sequence. And in the same way, we try to correlate, correlate this image with this person or this nation as if that's it. So we are waiting for that to be revealed, and then we'll wait for the next thing that, that's unfolded here. And, and I say that in conjunction with, thir with chapter 13, because there's a tendency to say, well, who is this beast and who will it be? And I would argue that the beast is probably in John's day a manif a particular manifestation but that's not the so the totality of what the beast means its symbol extends beyond the present moment that John is experiencing and it has further ramifications so the and and so that's why we make the reference to chapter 11 the beast rising from the bottomless pit is, is the beast rising from the, the, the sea. It's the, same, it's the same intent that it is an instrument of Satan to carry out his, his, his agenda on the earth. So the emphasis or the important thing is not so much who is the beast, but rather the emphasis is what does the beast represent. And the beast represents the institutional, and you could probably say individual manifestation of the will of the dragon. And the dragon has already been identified in chapter 12 as being Satan. And when we say institutional, in this instance, it probably refers to the Roman Empire in general and especially with their persecutions against the church. But the beast 
is not just a static figure. The beast represents any institutional effort to promote something that is contrary to the will of God. I think it corresponds to what John says in his first epistle, and he warns against, he says, you know, our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. So if we begin with the devil, as we see here in chapter 12 and 13, he is the one who is the, the age-old enemy of God. And so the devil is the dragon. The flesh is our fallen nature, which is animated by the devil. In Ephesians, we are told that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, we walked according to the purposes of the, of the devil. So it doesn't mean that we are all individually possessed by the devil. It simply means that in our fallen nature, we carry out the desire of the wicked one. And, and then the world is the fallen nature collectively. So it's the institutions and ideals that come from our collective fallen nature. So in this instance, the beast represents the institutional manifestation of the will of the dragon. Now you'll notice in chapter 12, because there's, there's some points of contact here, in chapter 12, verse 3, the dragon is described as having seven heads and ten horns. In chapter 13, here in our text, in verse 1, the beast also has seven heads and ten horns. Now, there are other variations. There are some distinctions and, uh, and there are some, some differences between the physical manifestation of the beast and the dragon. But that point of contact is there. The similarities are there. And it's intended to make the point that the beast is a reflection of the dragon. Which is kind of interesting because if we go back to creation, God creates man in his own image. So in a corresponding way, the dragon creates the beast in his own image. And so there are similarities and dissimilarities, but the point is God created man in his own image so that man could do, could carry out the will of God in the created order. In this instance, the dragon brings forth a beast in his own image so the beast can carry out the will of the dragon in the created order. The chaos is in direct contrast to the, the unity and the peace that God has intended for creation. So the beast is a reflection of the dragon, and it's also worth noting that the beast also resembles the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. Now, without going to that passage, I do want to reference that, um, and we, we've talked about the similarities between uh, Daniel, certain portions of Daniel's visions, 
and prophecies and what is revealed here in the book of Revelation. But real quickly, Daniel in chapter 7 sees a vision with four succeeding geopolitical empires. And those empires, um, they are presented as just really as they will function in, in human history. But those empires are Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks or Greece, and then Rome. So those are the succeeding. Now, there are obviously lesser nations that rise up, but those that take the place of a world empire. Those are the uh, four succeeding world empires that Daniel sees in the vision. And the fourth beast corresponds to the rise of the Roman Empire. So in one sense, this beast and the descriptions, by the way, are very similar. What, what John sees in the beast that rises from the sea is similar in character and in function to the fourth beast that Daniel sees, and especially with the blasphemies and and um, speaking those things that are contrary to, to God. So in a sense, in one sense, this beast that John sees is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy concerning Rome. And God does give specific prophecies uh, concerning specific nations at various times. So in the book of Daniel, what Daniel sees before it happens. And personally, I think one of the reasons for the succeeding empires that, that Daniel sees is to remind Daniel and the people that would receive these prophecies that after the exile, the reestablishment of the people of God will always be, it will always be in conjunction with the rising of secular geopolitical entities. And it's part of the case that we make that God never intends to reestablish an earthly kingdom in the same way that national Israel was until the consummation. So I think one of the reasons that Daniel sees these succeeding Gentile pagan nation uh, or, or empires is to remind them that when the children of Israel return to the land, they will always, they will have to contend with the Persian Empire. They will have to contend with the Greeks. They will have to contend with Rome. And then post-Rome, they will, whatever the world orders are, the world powers are, the people of God will always have to contend with these world powers. And these world powers, it doesn't matter what nation it is, these world powers will be much of the source of the conflict that the people of God will experience. So it's cultural, it's geopolitical, and so forth. So in any event, what John sees is the fulfillment, to some degree, of Daniel's, um, of Daniel's vision of the, the four beasts, and the very fact of John's imprisonment on the island of, of Patmos is due to the persecution of the church by the Roman Empire. Now, there are three 
broad observations that we want to make concerning these first four verses. I think it's three. Yes, it is three. So three, three broad observations. One is that the beast not only reflects the dragon, but we see that he's also given authority and is empowered by the dragon. And I want to make this statement here, and we'll repeat it elsewhere. That doesn't mean intentionality. We see in in, in this in chapter thirteen, it, it says in verse um, in verse two, it says, "And um, and the beast that I saw was like a leper." Or um, yeah, at, well, at the end of the verse, it says, "And and so and to it the dragon gave his power." and his throne and great authority. So the beast, let's begin with Rome. Rome was empowered and authorized in essence by Satan. But that doesn't mean that the Roman Empire consciously and intentionally was seeking to do the will of Satan. And I think that's important and, and we'll see that, that later as well. But but what powers, what, what empowers, and what, what gives authority to this institutional manifestation of that which is contrary to the law of God is fueled by Satan. And it's the same spirit, but it's only amplified as what we just referenced from Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, you walked according to the, the powers of the air. You, you followed the course of, of Satan. So what, what's portrayed here is Satan is intentional in empowering the beast, but the beast is not necessarily intentional in, his, in, in following the course of Satan. In other words, he's not trying to do the will of Satan. In fact, most of the will of Satan is done in the name of man because we don't recognize that this is contrary to the law of God. We don't recognize, I should say, that Satan is the ultimate source behind it. We just do what's in our nature. Uh, so the, the beast reflects the dragon in, in that he has certain characteristics that are taken directly from the dragon but more importantly, he is empowered by the dragon and he's given his authority from the dragon. And one other thing that should be noted in that, in that point is because we're talking about, in this instance, because we're talking about um, the Roman Empire, it should also be noted that this does not overthrow what Paul teaches in Romans 13 that all who govern are under the authority of God. They are still used by God to accomplish his purposes, even if, even as they are carrying out the will of Satan. So it's what we call confluence, where the purposes of Satan are being, or God is actually, and we'll see this probably next week, where the dragon is empowering the beast, but it's God who sets the limits to what to both what the dragon and the beast will do. 
So again, the first observation is that the beast reflects the dragon and he is also given authority and power by the dragon, even if it's not, even if he is not consciously committed to doing the will of Satan, the nation itself is doing the will, will of Satan. Secondly, the beast is presented as a counterfeit to the lamb. Now, this is something that we've touched on, and we'll see it even more as um, not just the lamb, but also an imitation of the bride. Those who are united to Christ are portrayed throughout the book of Revelation in the imagery of a bride. So the contrast to that is the whore, the pure bride that will be presented uh, to, to the lamb, the bride of the lamb, and then you have the harlot of Babylon, which is all the world system. So in this case, the beast is presented as counterfeit to the lamb. Let me show you the, 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 the connecting points. In chapter 5, it's the lamb that is slain that, is, that has the power and the authority to open the seals and, uh, and, and the scroll. And also, it is the lamb that is slain in chapter 5 that is the object of worship by all of those who are in heaven and those who are on the earth so there's the image that's that's the that's the pattern the slain lamb in fact i i made the point when we went over chapter 5 that when john is presented with the scroll and he wants to know who can open the scroll who has the authority and the power to do it he is told that it is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now notice that imagery, the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the one who's worthy to open the lamb or, or to open the scroll. And when John looks to the lion of the tribe of Judah, what he sees is a lamb that had been slain. And the lamb that has been slain is the savior of his people and he is the one who has power and authority. And because of that, you have this wonderful scene of worship that everyone falls. In fact, let's look at that in, in chapter five, the worship scene there. Once the lamb is, is, is said to, uh, to be the one to open uh, the scrolls. So in chapter five, beginning in verse eight, it says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have uh, made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of, of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb remember the lamb that was slain be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped so here in chapter 13 in verse 3 the beast has what appears to be a mortal wound and that wound is healed and when the wound is healed it causes the whole earth to marvel so you see the contrast so the beast is presented as a counterfeit to the lamb which brings us to the third and final observation in verse 4 what's interesting or I should say verse 4 is interesting because the people worship the dragon who empowers the beast and I think this further makes the point let's let's read verse 4 it says uh, well I'll read verse 3 and 4 it says one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who can fight against it now here's the point that I that, that I, I would like to make I don't think that this means the people worship the dragon intentionally because the dragon has empowered the beast. I think they are worshiping the dragon through worshiping the beast. They look at the raw, what they perceive as the raw brute power and authority of the beast and they worship it and by worshiping it, they are worshiping the dragon. So I don't think this means that um, one of the features of the rise of the beast in these days will be intentional satanic worship, even though that takes place. There are people that call themselves devil worshipers or Satan worshipers. That, that takes place. But that's not what dominates. If Rome is the figure here that is the current manifestation of the beast at the time that John writes this, then one of the things that Rome was, was characteristic at various points of the Roman Empire is what is called emperor worship, where they acknowledge the emperor to be divine. And I could take it, I think you can take it further and call it, you know, in some instances, is state worship. It's state idolatry, state idolatry, the worship or the deifying of state. We saw that actually under Hitler's regime, where everything was Mother Germany, and and it was a state idolatry. So you are crying out loyalty to the state over and above God. And sometimes people think they're doing the will of God in raising the state to a deified level. And so what's portrayed here when it talks about the worship of the beast 
and in effect worship of the dragon, in many instances, it's not A, intentional, and B, it's not overt. They, these people are worshiping an individual because they perceive in that individual power and authority that they think emanates from them, from the individual, rather than seeing them as instruments used of God. So there's this unhealthy allegiance, and, and we'll see this unpack a little more next week when we get deeper into chapter 13 of how this plays out, as well as the distinction between those who bear the mark of the beast and those who don't. But the point is, what we see in chapter 13 is a continuation of the conflict that is set forth both in chapter 11 with that which rises from the bottomless pit, as well as what we see in chapter 12 with the attacks of the dragon against the people of God and against Christ. Well, that's all the time that we have uh, for today. We will continue our discussion next week as we dive deeper into the content of chapter 13, looking at its, uh, how it, it plays itself out in the first century and how it continues to play itself out uh, throughout the, the course of human history. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you for the gift of life that you have given us in him. We thank you for your word, which reminds us that you are sovereign and you are the ruler of all things. And whatever takes place in time and space is under your sovereign rule, even as we deal with the forces of darkness that are still around us. We thank you that you have, uh, through Christ, you have conquered the evil one. And even now, as he, as he rebels and continues to rebel against you, we know it's within, it's under the umbrella of your sovereign purposes. So strengthen us in our knowledge of who we are in Christ, that we would not be overly distressed and we would not be overwhelmed by the things that we see in the world and even the things that we suffer as a result of our faith, living out our faith in this, this crooked and perverse generation. Strengthen us for your glory and your service, even in the midst of darkness and difficulties, knowing that you are all-powerful and there is nothing that takes place within your creation that is beyond your power and outside of your will. Strengthen us in our resolve to know your will and to live in its light. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome to our Bible study. We will continue our study in the book of Revelation. And today I want to enter into chapter 13. Now, originally I had planned to cover verses 1 through 10. But what I want to do is two things. One, show the link between the content, especially the ending of chapter 12, and how it plays out differently in chapter 13, even though we're talking about the same issue. And then secondly, focus on verses 1 through 4. So in focusing on that, we'll see the relationship between the beast and the dragon and try to answer some of the 
the issues or the difficulties that people have with some of the imagery here. So let's read Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and uh, with ten diadems on its, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Now, what we've seen in chapter 12, which is a reiteration of what we've seen in other portions of this vision so far, but what we've seen specifically in chapter 12 are the persistent and manifold attacks of Satan, who is identified as the dragon, in conjunction with both spiritual and human agency. The reason we mention the spiritual agency is because in chapter 12, we see that the angels, the fallen angels, are in league with Satan. Uh, we referenced Ephesians 6, where Paul reminds us that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And by that, what he is referring to are the spiritual powers that animate human activity. So in chapter 12, we see that the persistent and manifold attack of Satan uses both spiritual and human agency. There are spirits at work and, and they work through human agency. And the primary source or the primary object of their attack is all of those who are in union with Christ, all of those who are in union with Christ and connected to Christ. Now, I would argue, and we'll see uh, as some of this unfolds, that these attacks range from the subtle to the overt. They are different in nature, as we've pointed out, even though it includes physical persecution, Physical persecution will always be a persistent threat to those who name the name of Christ and in some places very overtly, but the primary and the most persistent source of attack is going to be primarily verbal, and that's through um, heresy, blasphemy, uh, false doctrines, false religions. So that's the one thing that we see as a constant throughout the New Testament, that the primary means of attack, and I would argue that, by the way, that this goes back to uh, the fall, the fall of, of Adam and Eve. It was through words that, that the serpent was able to tempt the woman, and then Adam followed suit, but it was through the use of words, discrediting what God had said, causing um, the image bearer to rise up to uh, and, and, and assume equality with the creator. So 
words are going to be very important. We saw that in chapter 12 with the emphasis of the attack of the dragon with the things that came from his mouth. He spewed heresies, blasphemies, etc. Now, chapter 13 is a continuation of this conflict, but it's a continuation with more details. Some of them are going to be very specific to uh, John in, in his generation and under the Roman Empire, but the essence of it continues. So chapter 13 is a continuation of the conflict, but it's given us more details. Now you notice that chapter 12 ends with the description of the dragon standing on the sea. Now I didn't I intentionally did not get into the imagery of him standing on the sea, uh, partly because I wanted to uh, mention it in conjunction with the opening of chapter 13. Uh, but this this dual imagery is very fitting for the content that follows in chapter 13, that the dragon is standing on the sand of the sea. And when I say the dual imagery, both the sea and the sand are used in a metaphoric sort of way or uh, in a symbolic way. We've noted this before, and especially in conjunction with the contrast as it relates to the sea. Sea is used to portray that which is in turmoil and chaos. And I said we've mentioned it before by way of contrast, because before the altar of God, it's, uh, the, the, the pool is described as a sea of glass. So sea of glass indicates peace as opposed to, to, to chaos. So whenever sea is used metaphorically or symbolically in the scriptures, and not just in the scriptures, but in, in poetry and just in literature in general, it refers to something that, that is chaotic and something that is in turmoil. But the sand of the sea, that's also important. So the dragon is standing on the sand of the sea. The sea indicating chaos and turmoil, but the sand is used symbolically to indicate a great number. So for instance, when the Lord is promising a seed to Abraham, he tells him that his, his offspring, his seed shall be like the sand of the sea. And basically is saying that it's gonna be saying that your, your seed or your generation is gonna be without number. So here's what's portrayed, that the serpent or the dragon is, is will use manifold and many sources to bring about chaos and disruption within the created order. That's the image. So he's standing on the sand of the sea, indicating a great multitude that is beyond number that will carry out 